The Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Gilbert K. Chesterton once said, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of readiness to die. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Of Jonathan, this podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. Talk to us anytime with your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all of our social media channels. Make sure to continue your Bible study after today's episode with our comprehensive CQ Rewind show notes, where we visually and contextually map out this episode's content, always available on our website and our Insider Weekly newsletter. Plus, make sure to check out our YouTube channel for new videos every week featuring the CQ Kids series, our Moments That Matter series, CQ Bible 101, and much more at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what's on the table for today? Well, Rick, our question is, does the Bible contradict itself? Part 1. And our theme text is found in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All right. So does the Bible contradict itself? This is going to be an interesting ride. You know, the Bible is a big, complex, and deeply misunderstood book. It was written over a period of 1,500 years by up to 40 authors. It was written in three different languages. And to make matters more complicated, it has been translated a myriad of times through the last few thousand years and has suffered the unfortunate treatment of being altered along the way by some of its translators. Many, especially atheists, have enthusiastically pointed out numerous glaring contradictions in its pages. So folks, coming up in today's podcast, let's be honest. No one wants to be told that something they deeply believe in is not credible, is contradictory, and is utterly absurd. That's exactly what many say about the Bible. So today we begin the journey to meet these criticisms head on. Did you know that there is a Bible verse that says someone other than David killed Goliath? What's up with that? We'll approach this question first. In our second segment, we're going to deal with the question of how Judas died. Many say the Bible doesn't get that story right. Well, it does. As Christians, we hold tightly to the unchangeable nature and character of God, but others laugh at this. Our third segment covers the huge question, does God change his mind? In other words, is he fickle, as some accuse him of being? Answers to this are really fascinating. How about this? The Sabbath, we all know, is Saturday, according to the Jewish law, and was commanded by God to always be kept. So then, why do Christians worship on Sunday? That's segment four. And folks, segment five, and you have to stay around for segment five. There, we reverse the roles and begin to ask questions of those who are asking the questions. 
So, Jonathan, a lot of ground to cover today. It's going to be fascinating. You mentioned that this is part one. That's right. And that how many mean, how many parts will there be, brother? I don't know. <laughs> this is <laughs> this, seriously. This isn't going to be an open ended series that we're going to come back to periodically. It's probably going to take us a long, long time. But we want to cover many, 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 many of these contradictions one at a time. Well, Rick, in the midst of all of these uh, skepticisms of the Bible, we confidently proclaim that the Bible is the inspired and harmonious Word of God. Who was right? Is the Bible contradictory, or can each and every contradiction be explained? Okay, so, like we said, there are many contradictions in Scripture. We're going to cover many of them in this multiple-part series. So, folks, listen, here's how you can help us. If there are contradictions you know of that you would like explanations for, or even if there are contradictions you don't think can be explained, We'd love to hear from you. Send them to us, and we'll put them in the, 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 the stack of contradictions, apparent contradictions and skepticism that we already have, and see if we can address them over time. So, Jonathan, this is an interesting subject, um, and I was telling you before we got started, it wasn't something I was really excited about originally, but boy, I just can't wait right now. Okay, so let's start. Let's get started. Okay, first thing, contradiction or needing a clear explanation, what is it? Well, here's the question, Rick. Who killed Goliath? You mentioned it before. You know, David slew Goliath, didn't he? Yeah, well, that's what everybody says. This is one of the most famous Bible stories of all time, and we have proof of that in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 50. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. So there's no way to change that. David kills Goliath. This account is unequivocal in in its characters and their roles. You know that David is the guy. You know Goliath is the giant. David slew Goliath. It's pretty straightforward. Until you look at the other side. And most of us don't even know there's another side. There's a scripture that talks about a man named Elhanan who killed Goliath. And that's in 2 Samuel 21, verses 18 through 19. Now it came about after this that there was war again, and the Philistines at Gob. Then Sabakai, the Hishatite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. There was war with the Philistines again at Gob. And Elhahan and the son of Jarah Ejim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Love those names, don't you? Oh, no, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're talking about who slew Goliath. Jonathan's trying to slay the Hebrew language. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) But, you know, in this scripture, Jonathan, it says this guy, El... El Elhanan killed Goliath. Now, in the King James Version, it adds brother of before Goliath. But that's really not is what is in the manuscript, to be fair. So, you know, and, and it describes this guy, Goliath, to think, well, is it the same Goliath? Well, it's interesting. It says at the end of that verse, whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And that distinct description also verifies the same guy, because we see that description of 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 7, in the account of David. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. 
His shield carrier also walked before him. So here's the question. Which guy killed Goliath? One of them did. Did both of them? Were there two Goliaths? It doesn't look like there's two Goliaths because he's using the exact same thing to describe both accounts. So how do you find harmony in this? And, and folks, look, when we go through these contradictions, we truly believe there's harmony. So the question is, how do you find it? Well, with this kind of difficulty, if we had one account say one thing and another account say something else, what we would typically do is look at this dilemma and lean toward the more detailed account and search for a cause for the error. Fortunately, in this case, there's another scripture that addresses the error. And this is really interesting. This is really cool. It addresses the matter in First Chronicles chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. And we're not going to quiz anybody to try to remember all of the names that you already said, but this repeats a lot of them. So go ahead, Jonathan, do your best. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. Now, it came about after this that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines. Then Sabakai the Hushatite, killed Sepiah, one of the descendants of the giants, and they were subdued. And there was war with the Philistines again, and Elhanan, the son of Jer, killed Lahami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So this is interesting because it's saying almost exactly the same thing. You can tell it's talking about the exact same events. It describes Goliath in the, in the same way, but it adds this idea of brother of Goliath, and it gives a name, this Lahami. So both Second Samuel and First Chronicles are clearly the exact same historical recounting. Okay, it's like they're they're just going over history and they're saying, here's what happened here, here's what happened there. So, and so Rick, that gives us a, a two to one focus on David killing Goliath, right? Yeah, and, and see, that's the point. When you have things that don't look like they make sense, you look further, you look at details, you look if there's another recounting, because in the scriptures, many events are repeated several times. And so the challenge is to look at the different repetitions of those events and pull them together and see what makes sense and see what doesn't make sense. So, you know, we've got uh, this, this two to one, and it really gives you a sense that, that the original account of David that we've always looked at really is the true account because Second First Chronicles puts the brother of Goliath in there very, very plainly. And again, you look further in First Samuel, and the and David killing Goliath is recounted in a different con context. First Samuel twenty one verse nine. And the priest said, "The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth." behind the ephod. If that would take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. So you have the sword of Goliath, and the high priest is saying, yes, you, this is the, the, the sword of the giant that you slew. So, Jonathan, we, 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 we draw a conclusion. It's a simple conclusion, and some people may get, you know, rattled at the conclusion, but, but what is it? David did kill Goliath, and 2 Samuel 21 had a copyist error. There are three potential errors that could have, have occurred, but CQ Rewind show notes with the bonus material will give the details. So there is, we're saying there was a copyist error in 2 Samuel uh, uh, 21. It, it, they, 
left out a detail. And, you, and when you look at the way the language is structured, it's really easy to see it. You need to see the show notes to get that. Now, people say, aha, so you're saying the Bible's full of errors. No. What we're saying is human error makes the Bible like it might have some errors. Are we saying all the contradictions or apparent contradictions are that way? No. And here's the thing, folks, you have to realize. There are hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts that agree on 99.9% of all of these scriptures. So when we come to this one little detail and we see that it's verified in a couple of different areas, why are we going to get all upset when you say, okay, somebody made an error along the way in, in copying? The word was not incorrect, but the way the words were written was a tiny bit incorrect. Is that okay? Of course it is. It's human error. So we need to put all of this in perspective to understand the matter. The fact is that human error exists, and it shows us how important it is to be really thorough students of Scripture. So contradiction can occur due to human error. What about when two accounts say different things? You know what's great about subscribing to Christian Questions on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. You receive a push notification reminder every time a new episode is published. Plus, it's a good thing to binge listen to several episodes in a row, really easy playlist features, and you can auto-download new episodes to your phone every week. So subscribe today. Now let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. Human errors in translation process are usually small things, and fortunately, we have context and repetition to help us find them. It's a different situation when we have two scriptures seeming to say something happened differently. Here, we need to look for the connecting clues. So, Jonathan, what we're going to do today is really go through um, four different apparent contradictions of scripture that have basically four different reasons for the apparent contradiction and illustrate how these things can be put in order if we are willing to, to, to do the work, but there's lots of reasons you can have a contradiction or something that looks like it doesn't fit correctly. So having said that, I'm going to go to one of your favorite things. A soundbite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't like these, do you? No. These are, these are hard to handle. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you've got to go to the, to the, to the folks that, that really look at the scriptures with disdain and here we did, we went to a, a YouTube video called Ridiculous Bible Verses You've Never Heard, and it's from Secular Talk. And so obviously their perspective is the Bible's ridiculous, and, and we're going to play these things because it's a different perspective, and it's people looking at scriptures, and look, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. And the, the question we want to ask ourselves is, is the opinion that I hold valid, or is it not valid, and how do I know? So let's just take a listen. And these are things that I didn't know. These are other absurd Bible verses that were totally foreign to me. I had no idea they existed until I read this. And they are delicious. <laughs> so let me read you some of these, and please feel free to use them when you're debating a bunch of idiots. Okay? Quote, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over men. She is to keep silent. That's in Timothy 2.11. And the takeaway from this, of course, is uh, the whole idea of having female teachers in school, it's against the Bible. Fire them all. And, it, hey, it, you're not allowed, don't ever listen to a woman. That's what it's saying. No woman should have authority over men. So you know what else that means? All female doctors, 
all uh, female surgeons, sorry, you're fired. It's in the Bible. Never have a female teacher, never have a female doctor. Actually, no, it isn't. (laughs) Sorry, pal. But uh, you need to understand Scripture. It's talking about teaching in a very specific context. And it's interesting how um, it's so easy to take things out of their context, especially when you're talking about ancient times and ancient cultures. And, you know, the, the approach of, you know, when you're debating idiots, you know, here's a good Scripture to use. Well, let's be smart about the Scriptures that we use and understand what their context is. And and that's really what we want to get to in this particular segment. So, you know, just it's interesting, it's fascinating to me. Part of it frustrates me and part of it just makes me smile because it gives us something to 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 look at and say, okay, let's find the truth on the matter. So next point, Jonathan, contradiction or needing a clear explanation. Well Rick, our next question, how did Judas die? By hanging or his guts spilled out. Really? We're going to talk about a guy with his guts spilling out? Yeah. Thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so there, and and you know, this one to me is really, really, really easy, but this is brought up a lot, and that's why we're we're addressing it, because it's brought up in, in several different places. The primary thought is that Judas died by suicide by hanging himself, and we see that in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 to 5. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Okay, so this is a plain statement that clearly implies Judas died by hanging. Very simple, very straightforward, and again, most of us look at, you know, we think of the the, the biblical account, and that's the conclusion that we come to. But the well, epi- Rick, the other side of that, okay, Judas died by falling, and his intestines burst out of his abdomen. And that that's is the other side of the story. Yeah, and that's just plain gross. I am sorry, <laughs> but it's gross. Now, where do we get that from? It's interesting, we don't get that in the context of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't mention that. But it comes in, up in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And this is interesting. This is Peter talking to the other disciples, and he's referring back to Judas. Listen carefully to what he says and, and how he describes things. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. So that field was called the field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, Let this homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. So you can, if you look at this, it can kind of sound like while Judas was walking along one day, he tripped and fell and his abdomen ruptured and his guts fell out all over the place. Yuck. Okay, so, okay, so what happened? Did, did Did Judas hang himself or did his guts fall out? 
Well, he died by hanging. So both are true. So yes. how, how is it that both are true? Okay, both accounts are simply different aspects of Judas' death. Okay, he dies by hanging, and his body stays there, hanging, literally hanging from the branch of a tree. And eventually, the rope or branch on which it hung broke, and that's when his body fell headlong. And so you can say, okay, what about the guts, and why is that a detail? Well, let's look at uh, we, we, we just a, a short explanation from AnswersInGenesis.org um, on how did Judas die. Just a few lines from there, Jonathan. Gruesome as it is, Judas' uh, uh, dead body hung in the hot sun of Jerusalem, and the bacteria inside his body would have been actively breaking down tissues and cells. And a byproduct of bacterial metabolism is often gas. The pressure created by the gas forces fluids out of the cells and tissues and into the body cavities. The body becomes bloated as a result. In addition, tissue decomposition occurs, compromising the integrity of the skin. Judas' body was similar to an overinflated balloon, and as it hit the ground due to the branch he hung on or the rope itself breaking, the skin easily broke and he burst open with this internal organs spilling out. Okay, so what he's saying is that the organs, and again, I folks, apologize for the, gross, the grossness of this segment, but he's saying that it's a natural phenomenon that a carcass in the hot sun is going to bloat. And when it fell, it busts open. And so, so you got to ask yourself, why is this being brought up? I mean, why does Peter go to the lengths to do this? You know, why the difference is Matthew's reporting how Judas died, and Acts Peter is establishing what happened to Judas as a result of his suicide and horrific fall from the tree. And, you know, it's interesting... We'll get to the prophecies that Peter quotes in a minute because he does quote a couple of prophecies, but I think he brings this up to show the, the, the a sense of shame for the betrayal. It's not only did the, that, that he took his own life, but look what happened afterwards. And I think Peter is just making a point that this was horrible on every level. It was horrible. And then he talks about Judas being taken out of the picture is actually a fulfillment of scriptural prophecy. He quoted from two different Psalms. First, he quoted from Psalm 69, verses 25 to 26. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you yourselves have smitten. So, camp be desolate, none dwell in their tents. They have persecuted him. So he's saying, Peter's saying that Judas fulfilled that prophecy. He was one who had persecuted Jesus by turning him over to the authorities unjustly. So he says, may their camp be desolate. Peter quotes that. Then he quotes a part of Psalm 109, verses 6 through 8. Appoint a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his day be few. Let another take his office. So Peter quotes that last phrase of Psalm, he quotes verse 8 of Psalm 109, and he quotes verse 25 of Psalm 69, and he's saying, Judas was the man who betrayed our Lord. 
this is what happened to him. This is the, 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 the horrible thing that happened to him after he hanged himself. And he's saying he needs to be replaced. He's looking at the prophecy saying, we now only have 11. We're supposed to have 12. Oh, Rick. So that's when they drew lots and they picked Matthias yes. to replace Judas? Yeah. And because of this prophecy. Right, right. And so Peter is saying, logically, we need to get that 12th apostle. The problem is, Jonathan, that God himself called each of the 12 original apostles to Jesus. They drew lots to figure out who would be the 12th. Not so good in terms of decision making. Obviously not, because obviously the apostle Paul was God's choice. Right, and he came in later on. Mm-hmm. But and so you, they bring this in this this, this brother Matthias, and who must have been a really wonderful individual. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but we don't know anything else about him. No, we so don't. <laughs> so he's sort of he's sort of selected by the other apostles, and then who knows what happens? And the apostle Paul ends up being the twelfth. But the point of this segment is that it's not a contradiction. Judas hanged himself, and as a result of the dead body hanging in the hot sun, and eventually falling from the tree, there was another, another, con- uh, another co- consequence. So in this case, we need to put these two scriptures together yes. to find that harmony. Right, exactly. So what's our, what's our overall conclusion? Different scriptures often reveal different parts of a story. It is important to observe how the harmony of various details actually fit together. Remember, there is more to the story. So you can't just look at one piece and say, okay, got it. Look at all of the other pieces, put them together, and try to put them in order, and then say, okay, now we've got it. So, folks, the scriptures are complex. Who said it was going to be easy? We've got to put these things together, and there's no contradiction here whatsoever. It's simply an order of events, and when we try to squeeze it into being exactly the same thing, we're really, we're really, I think there's a little bit of intellectual dishonesty going in there because it simply is an order of things. It just, it's it's really not, not hard to put in order. So when all of the details don't seem to fit, step back and take a look at the bigger picture. What about our unchangeable God? Does he ever change his mind and in so doing contradict himself? Rick and Jonathan have been friends for decades and co-workers on this weekly podcast for just about that same length of time. Since they know each other so well, sometimes Jonathan has to rein Rick in because, let's face it, Rick can start an in-depth analysis at a moment's notice with all those facts stored in his head. So thank you, Jonathan, for keeping Rick in check when you add your comments to help us understand on a non-professor level. And don't shy away to ask Rick and Jonathan a question. They love answering all of them at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. What's next, gentlemen? You know, there are many texts that we could bring up under this category of potential Bible contradiction. Of all areas we will consider in these several podcasts, this is perhaps the one that urges the most caution. I mean, you ask the question, what about our unchangeable God? Does he change his mind or not? We are the created. Should we even be judging the intentions of God? Good question, Well, you know, and be careful. Be careful with this. Because we are really walking into very, very, very difficult territory as we deal with this. So before we get into this segment's contradiction, and Jonathan, I love this segment. I love 
the scriptures. And, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful, actually, to those who are bringing up the contradictions, because I never would have put these particular scriptures in order. They did it for us. And it's like, this is really cool stuff. So we're going to get into that. But first, let's go back to Ridiculous Bible Verses. This is your favorite thing I know. Oh, no. <laughs> ridiculous Bible Verses You've Never Heard from Secular Talk. And again, they're there just to say, look, you know, they're, and this is what the guy said in the previous soundbite, they're idiots that believe this. And so he's, he's just showing you, taking, taking Scripture apart. Quote, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's in Matthew 5.28, and let me decode that. That means that even looking at a woman and being attracted to her is adultery. <laughs> so all the pain that people go through where they think, Oh my God, I can't violate the Lord. We can't allow gay marriage that violates God's law. You know, we can't get remarried or whatever. We can't get divorced. That violates God's law. Uh, actually guaranteed you already violated God's law. If you looked at a woman and never thought, oh, she's attractive, you're going to hell. You already committed adultery in your heart, man. You already committed adultery. So here's a guy who doesn't believe anything in the Bible. He uses the idea of hell. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Okay, you know, that doesn't belong. And, and, and he completely misrepresents what the Scripture said. It's really simple. Committed adultery in his heart. When you do something in your heart, Jonathan, it doesn't mean you actually did it. But God does judge it. Make no mistake about it. God does judge it. But looking at someone saying, wow, they're an attractive individual, is not lusting after them. So if you want to pick on Scripture, please pick on Scripture and not your fabrications built around a few words that you just are not paying attention to. Because that's exactly what he did there. And it really is very, it, it's, it's sad. You know, it, it's sad um, that we get looked at this way, but oh well. You know, it gives us something very important to talk about. So getting on to the next, contradiction or needing clear explanation? Well, our question, Rick, does God change his mind or always keep it the same? Okay, this, I love this segment. I love the scriptures, and I love what we're about to go to. So let's start with God's mind is set and unchangeable. And Jonathan, we believe that. Yes, we do. Okay. He doesn't change his mind. The context of our next scripture, which is going to be in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, is God judging his people, yet reminding them of his steadfast love for them. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So it says, I, the Lord, do not change. What does it mean, that, that word mean, change? It means, Rick, to alter. Okay, so I don't alter myself. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I, um, well, alter means to change. It's a pretty straightforward thing. So you've got that scripture that says, I do not change. That's God speaking. That's pretty plain. Next scripture, the context of this next scripture is Balaam talking to Balak. And Balak is asking Balaam to not follow God's instruction to him. So he's asking, I know you're saying God wants to bless these people, but I'm telling you, don't curse them. And so here's Balaam's answer. This is Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? 
or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So again, this is another scripture proving, you know, God doesn't change. It says he's not a man that he should repent. Now, Jonathan, that word, what, that's an entirely different word than in the previous verse. What, what does that word mean? There's a lot of meanings. Listen up. It means to sigh, that is, breathe strongly, or to be sorry, uh, that is, to pity or console or rue, or to avenge oneself. Wow. So it's got a wide variety of meanings. It means a lot of things. Okay. But what, what, so when we look at this scripture and we look at this word, Balaam is saying very plainly, God is not a man that he's going to uh, rue. I think that's the, the right definition, that he's going to rue what he did. He's not going to repent from what he said he would do. He's going to stick with it. Because he knows what's right. 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 And, and he's God. And so we have these two scriptures that say, yeah, God doesn't change his mind. Well, let's just add one more for fun, okay, about God being very firm. The context, this is the New Testament scripture. James is saying that the only ultimate good for anything comes from God and to never worry about that because it's very stable. This is James 1, 17 to 18. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the fathers of light, of whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So in this verse, obviously New Testament, obviously different language, it says uh, every good and perfect thing comes from God, the father of lights, with whom there is no variation. So what does that mean, no variation? Well, it means transmutation or phase or orbit that is fickleness or variableness. So, and I like fickle. You know, fickle to me, first of all, it's a fun word to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but secondly, it gives you the sense of somebody that just, you know, kind of settles in, but really isn't settled in. And they want to go one direction, but they're going to change. And, well, maybe they'll change back. God is not that way. That's what James is saying. Okay, so we have three scriptures that describe the unchangeableness of God in very specific ways. But, Rick, God does change his mind frequently. So are you just going to blow up everything I just said? I am. <laughs> okay, so God does change his mind frequently. Well, how do we know? Let's take a look at a few of the other scriptures. Uh, the context of the first one, which will be Exodus thirty-two fourteen, God allowing Moses to talk him out of destroying Israel. Aha, you see, there's a change of mind right there. After building the golden calf. Okay, so this is early on in the nation of Israel. They're, they've escaped from, from, from Egypt, and now God is angry with them because they're building a golden calf because Moses went up for 40 days into the mountain. Exodus thirty-two fourteen. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Okay, Jonathan, where it says the Lord changed his mind, what, what word is that? Well, he changed, he, uh, God voiced his right to avenge himself, and in so doing gave Moses the necessary passion to deal with the sin he would face when he left the mountain. Okay, but isn't that the same word that was used in Numbers? that says God doesn't change? Yes, same exact word. So wait, so the same word is used to say God doesn't change, and then the same word is used to say God changed his mind. Now remember all the definitions that word could be? Yeah, so, but that, you know, you look at that and on the surface you say, that's a problem. 
That's a problem. You're using the exact same word to prove God doesn't change his mind. And then in this other scripture, it says God changed his mind. But we take a look at it and we look at the context. And he, as you said, God voiced his right to avenge himself. And in so doing, gave Moses the necessary passion. So in other words, God had said, I'm angry enough to destroy them. But how do we explain it if it's the same word and it's done both ways? Because it's a different definition. And people can say, aha, you're creating a loophole. No, we're looking at the context and picking the definition that fits the context. And if you think the word avenge meets this context, the word rue met the other context. Exactly, because God reserved the right to destroy them because they, they, they betrayed him essentially in their faithfulness. But Moses said, no, 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 just, just give, give us time, give us time. And God knew Moses would do that. But God needed, Mo- God needed Moses to take the stand because he's the leader of the people. He needed Moses to love those people and to say, let's work with them because that makes it firm in Moses' own mind as to the importance of keeping them pure in the sight of God. Wow. The wisdom of God to really prepare Moses to know how to handle things. Right. He challenged him, and Moses had to rise up for the challenge. And we look at this because God is almighty, and we know that the things that he does have are sensible. So you say, okay, well, use that word and use it two different ways. You know, that's kind of, some people can say that's a little suspicious. Okay, let's go on to the next scripture. If you think that's suspicious, wait till this one. Okay, Uh, the context of the next scripture is Genesis, it's Genesis 6, 5 to 6, and the context is the flood. This is when God sees everything that's going on with the world, and it's really, really bad. Genesis 6, 5 to 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth, and that every thought was uh, intent was evil in the heart, and it was continual. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So it says the Lord was sorry. What's that? Sorry is the same word. Again. Again. <laughs> back in Numbers and in Exodus. Okay. Yeah. So it's sounding like he's, he's sorry. And then it says he was grieved. And the word for grieved means, uh, you know, to be pained. That's really, really, you know, the idea. You know, pain or anger. He's upset. But it says he was sorry that he made man. So, you know, people say, aha, he changed his mind about making man. But when we look at that, Jonathan, which one of those definitions do we look at that makes sense in this in this context? Well, sorry and pained. I think both uh, really fit there. Yeah, so God deeply sighed, because one of the definitions was to sigh. Oh, okay. yes. Okay, so God right. deeply breathe sighed. Strong, breathe strongly right. to sigh. Yes. So it was like, <sighs> look at the mess. And... And you see the emotion of God and the care that he has for his creation. So when you say, well, he changed his mind. No, he was deeply upset by the situation. It doesn't say that he changed his whole plan. He was deeply upset. When the Lord changed his mind in Exodus 32, it wasn't that he changed his his whole plan. He was stating to Moses that I have a right to kill them because they have betrayed me. And Moses stood up. And, and, and God allowed Moses standing up to affect the immediate consequences. So we've got these two verses that talk about God changing. But again, when we look at the different definitions of the word, there's really no change involved. It's, it's, it's dealing with the present circumstances 
in a way that is is being managed by the uh, those around it, and and that's really important because it's a free moral agency of the people. One more verse on this, Jonathan, John, uh, Jonah, chapter three, verse ten, and everyone knows the story of Jonah and the great fish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented, and Rick, the King James says, repented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So that word relented is again the exact same word. So did God change his mind entirely, say, I'm going to destroy you? Oh, no, I'm not. The word definition really pitied is one of the words for that definition that really seems to fit here. Sure. God pitied the people as because they responded to his prophet and they said, we, we realize the, the wrong of our ways. So it's not like God said, well, no, I'm not going to do it anymore. He had pity on them because they responded. And that was appropriate. So, Jonathan, what's the lesson here? God's mind is unequivocally set for the ultimate good of his creation. At the same time, he allows for the free will of men to have influence on the immediate circumstances they face. See, this is really important. In each of these scriptures where this word comes up, he's paying attention to those around him, the people, the human beings, and he's responding to their responses. He's not changing his mind. He's giving them leadway to be a part of things. So you got to ask the question, are we stretching the whole thing by applying all these different meanings to one word. No, because the context matters, Rick. And, you know, and, and for those who are skeptical about Scripture, you can say, well, you're picking and choosing the definition. And the answer is, yes, we are, because the context demands that we do so. Let's give you a real, plain and simple English language example. This is a story that I wrote myself, Jonathan. Okay, it's, a, it's right. a very Pretty detailed fancy. story. <laughs> okay, and we're going to feature one word in this story as an example of, wor- of a word that has a lot of different meanings. What's the word? It's fine. Okay, F-I-N-E, fine. Mm-hmm. Right. So here's the story to illustrate the various definitions. A man woke up one morning and drank his whey protein drink, which was ground into a fine powder. Now, when I say that, you, you can get a picture of what that means, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay, that powder is really, really, I mean, you can blow it and just goes, goes all over everything because it's yep. so fine. Mm-hmm. So let's continue the story. He went outside, and it was a fine day. Now, that's not like a little powder anymore, is it? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he put on his fine clothing, and he went for a drive. So you've got a fine day and fine clothing. Obviously, you look at that, and it means completely different things. That's right. Same word. And we all know what it means by how it's used. Let's continue the story. Unfortunately, he was texting while driving. This is a public service announcement. Never do that. And he ran into a utility pole. So police officer comes, and the police officer who came to the scene asked him how he was. And how does he respond? He said, I'm fine. (laughs) Same word, and we know exactly what it means. At that point, the officer informs him that he would have to do what? Pay a fine. Okay. <laughs> Ouch. Right. So, you know, you've got this word. And, and so after he finds out he has to pay a fine, what is his response? Well, that's a fine thing. 
<laughs> so use this word, this one word, in three or four sentences in all of these different ways, and we all know exactly what it means. If we can do that with our language, certainly other language we can do that with and be justified to do so. So anybody who says, well, you're stretching it by picking and choosing definitions, fine. That's what I say to you. <laughs> fine. <laughs> What's our conclusion here? Clarity of context and an understanding of words within that context are absolutely necessary to be able to determine what is meant in the scripture. So context, and you know that that is one of my very favorite things. This is why we can understand God's unchangeableness by looking at those things which he allows to be altered in their context. And it tells us an enormously different story. This is huge and it's humbling. We all need to be so careful to dig deep so we understand correctly. How about something as simple as the Sabbath? Should Christians be keeping it on Saturdays? Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated. For those who'd like to see the Bible discredited, there are many easy paths to take. One such path is the discussion of the Sabbath. The Jewish law was simple and plain. Keep the Sabbath, and yet the vast majority of Christians have their worship and rest on Sunday, not Saturday. Why would we do that? If the scripture says, keep the Sabbath, and it's important, why would we do something different? Well, please see our program 697. Are the Christian and Jewish Sabbaths the same? For a full explanation. Okay, so we're going to give you a quick summation of what goes on here. Should we keep the Sabbath or not? Because God says to keep it. That's, that's the... Uh, that's the, 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 the real simplistic view of this. And, and Jonathan, just I want to go again one more time to your favorite soundbite source, Secular Talk, Ridiculous Bible Verses You've Never Heard. Um, and, you know, this, and, and frankly, this is where things get really, really ridiculous. And I would say, Rick's opinion, that this, what, ends up, this, what this ends up being is ridiculous interpretations of Bible verses that just don't belong anywhere except in someone's imagination. Let's listen. For I, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and the man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's in Matthew 10, lines 30, uh, 27 to 35. And that is the part of the Bible where it's flat out anti-family. This is Jesus saying, like a pure cult leader. No, no. I, I want to pit the father against the wife and the son and the son against the daughter and the daughter against the this and the that because I want you guys to hate each other in the family because you need to follow me. You have to put me above your family. So the whole idea of Christian family values that we have today where they say nuclear family, you know, white picket fence, a dog, uh, one man, one woman, all totally made up, man. 
Yeah, Jonathan, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's really sad. It's really sad that you don't take the, the, the phrases that Jesus is speaking there. And he is talking about creating an environment in which families will turn on each other because it's going to create a time to make uh, decisions. That's what he's talking about. But he never, ever, ever did anything to break up the family. Now, did he say to his followers, you should love me more than these? Yes, he did. Yes, absolutely. But did he say you shouldn't love your family? No, he never said that. You know, and there, there's a scripture that talks about, you know, uh, love me and hate them. And the word for hate literally means, look it up, love less. Now, as he's telling, you know, and when you look at the scriptures and you look at the New Testament built upon the words of Jesus, you see this incredible structure of how the family is so important. So when he says it's all made up, he simply did not read the rest of the verses, and there are many of them. So I, what I, you know, it says ridiculous Bible verses you've never heard, and my my response to that is respectfully ridiculous Bible verses you've never heard explained out of context so badly, because that's really where you're going with all of that. So let's get on to our next contradiction or needing clear explanation. Well, here's our question: Is the Sabbath to be kept or not? Okay. It's a simple question, and that's the interesting thing about a lot of these things. When people put these contradictions or supposed contradictions to you, they put it simply. Is it this way or that? And that makes you feel like, well, I've only got two choices. Well, let's think this through. First of all, the Sabbath, Sabbath is sacred and must be kept. God said so. When, and here's the thing. Everybody thinks that you know the Sabbath was given in the Ten Commandments, but it wasn't. It was given before that. It was given before that. They're wandering in the wilderness, entirely reliant upon God's miraculous care and feeding of them. This is where the Sabbath comes into play. Exodus chapter 16, 22 to 23. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So he said that the manna that, that fed them would come for six days. And on the seventh day, they weren't collected because it was the Sabbath. It was a day of rest. Their very sustenance was dependent upon acting in accordance with the Sabbath. Further, Exodus after the law was given, Exodus 31, 12 to 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So this sounds like a big deal. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Three key points on this, on the Sabbath, Jonathan. Well, the Sabbath was for the sons of Israel to identify them with their God. See, now this is really important. It identified them with God himself. This was really important for them. Next one. The Sabbath was a generational agreement. So it wasn't just, you guys do it, once you're out of the wilderness, you're out of the woods. No pun intended, I mean, because they weren't even uh. in the woods, because there were no <laughs> woods in the wilderness. But you know what I mean. I do. <laughs> okay, so, but it, he's saying this is something that you need to always keep in place. And what else? The Sabbath was evidencing the fact of God setting them apart. And that's enormous. That was one of the ways he showed that they were different. So what's the other side of the issue? 
Well, keeping the Sabbath is not a requirement, Rick. And we just got through saying how God was so emphatic on the fact that it was. Romans 14, verse 5. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. You know, and when you think about that, you're thinking, well, wait, according to God, the Sabbath stood, stood tall in relation to the other days. Why would the Apostle Paul in Romans be saying, well, no, every day, and some people, you know, think every day is alike, and, and they should be allowed to think that way. It's like, wait, isn't that a direct, glaring contradiction? It's really not. Well, well, Rick, we as Christians are not bound to the law except by its moral standards. So the law, because Jesus fulfilled it, does not guide what a Christian does in terms of ritual. That's what Jesus put an end to. Galatians three twenty four to 27. So that the law is become our tutor to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For ye are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. So Jonathan is in Galatians. Are the people listening, are they Christians or are they still Jews? These are Christians. Yes, they're Christians. So what it's saying is, you who were of Jewish background, having come to Jesus, what happened is the law taught you how to get there. So once you've arrived at this new destination, you don't need the tutor that brought you there. You That's leave, right. You leave it behind, and now you follow Christ. If you're still Jewish and you're not Christian, guess what? The Sabbath is still important. Right. So it's not a contradiction that for Christians the Sabbath doesn't end up being a centerpiece. It is a natural progression that it doesn't end up being a centerpiece because Jesus brought us to that point. So, you know, the apostles led us to a new kind of day of rest, and this is a whole different thing. And again, that's why you had mentioned Program 697, uh, Are the Christian and Jewish Sabbath the Same?, um, this this new kind of day of rest for Christians um, it, it puts a whole different light on things. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. So on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, it sounds like that's kind of what their, their habit was. Yes. The first day of the week is Sunday. Correct. Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. So you can see that in the early church, they would get together on Sundays, not on Saturdays. Again, they're no longer Jewish. So you follow what we have put in place because the apostles were there, they had God's spirit there, and they certainly knew what they were doing. They were establishing something different. They're not contradicting what God said but they're building upon the base of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections may be made when I come. So again, it mentions the first day of the week as this repetitive situation. And that is when the, uh, the, the Christians were typically getting together. And, you know, what would happen is they would often use the synagogues uh, you know, on, on the day off, if you will. 
you know, you had you had the seventh day, and then you had the first day. There, there ends up being a bigger lesson for that, but what's the lesson so far? Well, the seventh day was an ending, a physical rest for the Jews. It paved the way for the first day of worship, a new dispensation of spiritual rest for the Christian. So you see how it ends up building upon what was already there. You had something, nobody's changing it, because those who remained Jewish still were abiding by the Sabbath, as they do to this day. But for the Christian, the first day of the week took on a really important, different meaning. And how do we know that? Well, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, really brings it out in a, in a very dramatic way. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So on the Lord's day, it gives you a sense that, you know, this was a special day. And just remember, Jesus was in the grave, and what day was it that he rose? On the first day. On the first day of the week. So it's no accident that the apostles said, it's the first day of the week that we should be gathering and honoring God because that's when the resurrection happened and that's when everything changed. So when you come to the first day of the week, always remember what happened on the first day of the week. Jesus was raised and the world was saved, essentially. That's, that's, that's all that happened on that first day of the week. <laughs> that's huge. <laughs> it is. It is huge. So, so what's the conclusion here? The Bible is to be understood in context of ages and dispensations. As time passes, God's dealings with humanity do change as he shows us the step-by-step -step pathway back to him. So one of the key factors in understanding apparent contradictions is when are you speaking about one piece? Is it during the age of the law? Is it during the, the age before the law, before the flood? Is it during the age of of Christianity because if those are three main big big areas that change the way God dealt with humanity and when you see Christianity a lot of the guidelines are different they simply are because it was a progression and that's the point that's what the scriptures bring us a progression and seeing and understanding the Sabbath it doesn't mean that you disrespect it but you realize that the first day is very, very sacred as a Christian. You don't disrespect the seventh day. Remember in creation it says on the seventh day God rested. Yes. That's a huge thing. Let's not, yeah. let's not underestimate any of that. But let us not underestimate the resurrection of our Lord. So, again, is this a contradiction? No. It is a change of age in which guidelines clearly changed because the Scriptures told us that they changed. We're not just saying they changed because it's a convenient answer. We're saying that because the scriptures told us that they changed. So once again, it's the ability to see the bigger picture that helps us to ultimately see scriptural harmony. What should we say to those who are always looking to expose the Bible as a book of contradiction? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence 
Now let's put it together. This is a powerful and important question, for we're constantly pushed back on our heels when it comes to topics like this. People ask for answers, and when you give them those answers, they never seem to satisfy. Why? Well, look, it's time we also begin to ask questions so we can understand where the questioners are coming from. So Jonathan, originally was putting together the, the material for today. We we're going to do another contradiction or supposed contradiction here. But then started thinking about the idea that, you know what, we need to really address the reality of the matter of dealing with such things with people who are, who are not believing. And because, you know, what you don't want to do is what is often done to Christians. Say, well, those idiots think this. We don't want to walk into that trap. But we do want to do is understand the why. Okay, so before we get to that, let's go to a different kind of soundbite. This is Jordan Peterson, and it was a YouTube video. A Catholic student asks Jordan Peterson about contradiction in the Bible. And, and really, this section of it is on good versus evil and the allowance of evil. And, and Jordan Peterson's a really wonderful thinker. So listen, listen to his logic. In order for the good to be good, there has to be the possibility of evil. I think the right path is to exist such that the possibility of evil remains open, but that you choose the good. And I don't think that evil per se is built into the structure of the world. I do think that that's human. I think that evil is human. And I think it's understandable. I did a lecture that's online about the distinction between evil and tragedy. And tragedy seems to be built into the structure of the world, and perhaps you can blame God for that. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that it's your fault that there are earthquakes, for example. But, but it is ob- not obvious to me either that it's tragedy that takes the spirit out of people. I think that human beings are actually equipped to deal with tragedy, but we're not equipped to deal with malevolence. That destroys people. And so I think that, metaphysically speaking, the world is structured so that people have a choice between good and evil. And that, so then the next question is, why do we have a choice? And that, that's where my knowledge runs out. I- you know, it's interesting. That's where his knowledge runs out. That's where I get excited. It's like, oh, wait, look at what the scriptures say about why we have a choice. And, but, you know, it's interesting. He's talking about the idea of malevolence, evil, darkness being something that, that is, is very human. And, you know, it, look, it comes from Satan. Make no mistake about it. But tragedy and, 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 and things that happen like that are not necessarily evil. They just happen. And human beings respond well to those things. But when we have darkness that creates uh, trauma, it's a different story. And God allows that to happen in this world for a very specific, clear, short-term reason. And we say, well, it's been thousands of years. How can you say short-term? Because in terms of eternity, it's a drop. But that's for another program. So, so Jonathan, let's get to um, kind of wrapping this up in a very, very different kind of way. Much of our content today for those previous uh, supposed contradictions uh, and for a future podcast comes from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. The Freedom From Religion Foundation. So you know that by the title, what they're saying is, religion is bad, let's find a way to free the people from religion. So the, the concept of that is belief in God is foolishness, it's a waste of time, let's get you away from that. So here's a small quote 
from their article. And this article we use for several of our, of our supposed contradictions. And this was at the end of this particular article. We've got the, the website link um, in our CQ uh, Rewind show notes. All of the above contradictions have been carefully studied. And when necessary, the original languages have been consulted. Although it is always scholarly to consider the original languages, why should that be necessary with the word of God? Okay, so they're saying that, you know, we've listed out these many contradictions, and there are many, okay? And he said, we've carefully studied them. I challenge how careful the study has been. I really challenge it because it's a matter of getting into understanding language. And he says that, you know, you've, we've consulted the original languages. Yeah, but did you delve into them? Did you try to understand them? There's a difference between consulting and understanding. Now, look, I don't read Hebrew. I don't read Greek. I don't read Aramaic. I can barely read English. Okay? So <laughs> <laughs> let's understand that we stand on the shoulders of those who understand those languages. But the question he asks here is, well, you know, you know, we, we've looked into these languages, you know, from a scholarly fashion, but why should that be necessary with the Word of God? So he's saying, you know, if it's the Word of God, you shouldn't have to do that. That's where we need to begin to ask questions. So, Jonathan, a Christian's question to the questioner here might be what? Do you believe in God? Okay. Do you believe in God? Now, for someone like this, the answer, what, what's the answer probably? Uh, they would say no. Okay, and so I would say if I, you know, they're asking me a question. Well, you know, do you know that your God and your Bible says this? And before I answer that, I would say, well, wait, let me ask you a question first, because that's a really good question. As a matter of fact, I've got a, what I think is a really good answer, but let me first ask you, do you believe in God? And if the answer is no, I'd say, well, why don't you? And then? Their response would probably be, Rick, well, he is foolish. Yeah, he's foolish, he's ridiculous, there's no reason to believe in God, nothing makes sense, you know, what, and whatever it is, okay? Then I would ask him, so do you want to believe in God? Do you have any desire at all to believe in God? And their response would be, no, we, we want to expose um, the fallacy of God. And, you know, and maybe somebody says, yes, I would like to. But see, the point for asking these questions is find out where the person who's bringing the challenge is coming from. And for somebody who belongs to the Freedom From Religion Foundation, now you can, we're making an assumption, and I'm, and, and I'm putting it on the table. This is an assumption. They don't really have any desire to believe in God. So here's where I would go with this, Jonathan. Let's assume that that's the case. It may be okay. different, and, and we'll address that in a minute. Let's assume, though, do you believe in God? No. Why? Why not? Because, it's, like you said, it's all foolishness. Do you, would you want to believe in God? No. I have no reason at all to believe in God. And I would say at that point, so let me ask you then, why are you so concerned about what a book that I believe in says? What's your concern? Why are you bringing this up? What's, what's, I want to know the reason, because it seems to me, now I may be wrong, that the reason is you just want to poke holes in, the, in this reasoning. And if you want to poke holes in it, I get it, but are you willing to concede if those holes are not real? See, I think we need to get to the core of why someone's doing something before we start to engage in the conversation. So to me, this is important um, because if someone doesn't believe in God, they're not likely to accept the answers we're going to give them anyway. Okay, and why? Because 
everybody has a filter. And I'm not talking just about atheists. Everybody has a filter in their head. And you can give somebody a logical explanation who doesn't want that logical explanation, and they're going to filter it right out. I would like to know what, how their filter works. I think that's justifiable. If you want me to go to the lengths to answer this, I want to know why I'm answering. So I think that we need to be able to go down that road. And, and you know, just one last thing before we go to the next part of the paragraph. You know, he says, why should that be necessary with the Word of God? See, that question assumes um, the questioner knows the purpose and process of Scripture. He's saying, well, why should it be necessary with the Word of God? Well, what do you think the purpose of the Word of God is then? You must have a, a conclusion. Otherwise, you wouldn't make the assumption. I would want to find out what that is. My point here, folks, is don't be afraid to ask questions back. Don't be afraid to dig into why somebody is going down the road they're going. It's going to make for a fascinating conversation. So let's go to the next part of this paragraph. An omnipotent, omniscient deity should have made his all-important message unmistakably clear to everyone, everywhere, at all times. No one should have to learn an extinct language to get God's message, especially an ancient language about which there is much scholarly disagreement. So what he's saying is, if I were this omniscient God, I would have made my all-important message unmistakable, clear to everyone everywhere at all times. And the answer is, your assumption is off target. You're assuming that God put his word there so that everywhere, everyone is unmistakably going to answer it at all times. That's not correct. You assume that the purpose of God's word is to enlighten all people everywhere immediately. It's not. And people sometimes get shocked at that. But the Bible explains itself exactly that way. Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12 is a classic Example of that. As soon as he was alone with his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. So God through the, the word of God, in the words of Jesus, is saying here that to my very special followers, I will explain things. But to everybody else, I don't want them to understand. So this idea that, well, if God is so powerful, then everybody would understand him immediately. No. God is so powerful that he doesn't want everybody to understand him immediately. And you say, well, why wouldn't he? Isn't this the golden opportunity? And the answer is, not yet. See, God's plan is way bigger than our little assumptions. It's way bigger than, if I were God, this is what I would do. Well, you haven't managed the thousands and thousands of years of humanity. You haven't managed the entrance of sin and the necessity of developing sin so we all understand its meaning and its power and its, and its destruction to the point where we'll never want to go back to it again. See, that's what they don't think about, and they're missing the point of the Scriptures. So, Daniel chapter 12, let's go to an Old Testament Scripture. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, 
again tells us everybody's not supposed to get it. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. He tells Daniel specifically, conceal these words, seal up the book. In other words, don't want anybody to understand this right now. So the idea that, well, God should make it. And how many times have we had experiences with Christian questions throughout the years where people say that to us? Well, why doesn't God just say it? Because it's not time according to his plan. What he just says is, I'm not telling you now, but I will reveal it to you if you really want to know. And that brings me to the next Christian's question to the questioner. And what would that question be? Are you willing to put your paradigm aside to be able to absorb why God doesn't want everyone to know everything now? So I would want to ask that person, okay, look, you're assuming that the word of God is in place specifically so everybody can be enlightened. And I'm telling you, that's not why the word of God is there. Are you willing to put that assumption aside and get into an honest discussion of what the Bible really says step by step so I can show you why he doesn't want everybody to know now, but he will have everybody know later. And again, Jonathan, when you ask that honest question of somebody, you ask them, are you honestly willing to do that? Are you willing to walk alongside of me? Because this is a very complex story, and I'm happy to tell you. But Jonathan, for me, for Rick, if they're like, no, not really, I'm going to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that you miss out on such a great explanation. How's your mom? <laughs> yeah, there's no sense in going right. further in the conversation. Why go further? Because they're not going to listen. And if they're telling you essentially they're not going to listen, okay, there's no, there's no problem with that. How's your mom? <laughs> you know, just go on to something else. See, so let, let's, go, let, let's go one last piece of the paragraph here, and then we'll wrap this up. Again, this paragraph is from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. If the English translation is flawed or imprecise, then God failed to get his point across to English speakers. A true fundamentalist should consider the English version of the Bible to be just as inerrant as the original, because if we admit that human error was possible in the translation, then it was equally possible in the original writing. Wrong. That's just a wrong conclusion. They're saying if the English translation is flawed, and it is, and it's imprecise, and it is, then God failed. No, he didn't. Because, again, the scriptures tell us that this assumption does not account for what the Bible itself tells us is supposed to be. The Bible itself says this is difficult. 2 Timothy two fifteen to 16 Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. So be diligent to be a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. The implication is it's easy to handle it inaccurately. And it has been more, more times than not. And if, it was, if, if the Apostle Paul was telling Timothy then when the original languages were in use that it's going to get misrepresented, then how much more now do we need to look at that scripture and say, I had better be careful.
So this idea that, well, you need to accept the, the, the English translation as inerrant because, you know, you know the, the original could have been flawed. You miss the entire point of the scriptures. So what would be our Christian question, our Christian's question to this questioner here? Are you willing to look at and give credit to the many prophecies that have come true, the many scientific statements that the Bible spoke before they were known to humanity, and the astounding knowledge of the stars it contains? So again, if you're in that conversation, ask, are you willing to give the scriptures credit? for prophecies that have actually come true, for science that is actually provable, for for understanding the positioning of the... You realize that... You know, and, and people say, well, you know, the Bible alludes to the fact that the earth is flat. No, it doesn't. It just doesn't. It doesn't. It talks about the circle of the earth. It talks about the earth rotating around the sun, not the sun going around the earth the way people thought in ancient times. You know, it, 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 it gives us a sense of things that are bigger than humanity, and if you want to be critical, then by definition, you should be accepting as well. And if you would like to be accepting, we can have a much longer conversation about the power of Scripture and the harmony of Scripture and the morality of Scripture and the value of God's plan. Are you willing to do that? So, folks, when, when, when people want to essentially make fun of you, don't be afraid to ask questions back. And just find out what their motivation is. And if it comes out that their motivation is not, is not for any, any profit whatsoever, and we've done this in, in social media where, where people have asked questions and they've been very rude about it. And, and, and our response has been, and will always be, you know, there's a great answer to that. And if you'd like to ask again in a respectful manner, we'd, be, we'd love to answer the question. That's the way we think it should be. So, you know, folks, there's a lot going on here the Bible does not contradict itself. It simply needs to be explained. There are occasional copyist errors that we talked about. There are stories that are told from different perspectives that we have to keep in, in order. Uh, we need to know uh, what words mean in their context. And remember the word fine as an example of that. And the Bible is a timeline. Things change as humanity walks back toward God. God has got it all in order. So in our part two... That, that comes up in several weeks. We're going to pick up with more supposed contradictions. And again, folks, if you have contradictions that you see in the Scripture, you say, how do you explain this? Or I dare you to explain that. Send them in. We'd love to look at them and put them in and talk about them from the standpoint of what God's Word really means. But I just hope that you do it with the idea of wanting to learn and having an open mind to the fact that God is omnipotent. God does have a plan. You are in it, and Jesus did save the entire world through that plan. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed this introduction into supposed contradictions of Scripture. Lots to talk about. Think about it. Folks, remember, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us, review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, talking about something entirely different. Is motherhood still vital? We'll talk to you then. 